the third lecture dealing with God's law and the church. You may say, well, isn't that obvious? I wish it would be obvious. Uh, but I'm sorry to have to say that in most churches that I have spoken in, and indeed most churches that I have pastored thus far, the law of God is almost unknown in the church. Um, it seems to me that it's only a tiny minority of churches in the world today that read the Ten Commandments every Sunday morning from the pulpit. Uh, if you live in America, if you can manage to um, persuade your church to allow you to read the commandments once a month, uh, you've really achieved something. But in most churches of America today, the Ten Commandments are never read uh, from the pulpit at all. And this is a horrible situation. Because if people do not hear the Ten Commandments, particularly not in church, uh, that coupled with the antinomianism with which the evangelical world is, is rife, antinomianism, the hatred of God's law, uh, the mentality free from the law, oh happy conditions, sin all we want, there's always remission, uh, then you can see that um, you get the situation when people bring their tennis rackets to church or whatever and the moment the preacher says amen and they're looking at their watch uh, for him to preach a short sermon they take off and they're on the tennis courts or the golf course and uh, they just have no concept of uh, the Sabbath being God's holy day and similarly unless the law of God is read regularly from the pulpit and uh, a portion of it explained regularly in the church, you'll find that even God's people who do keep the Sabbath falling into lies uh, or into uh, dragging their feet on the job because they haven't realized that the Ninth Commandment and the Fourth Commandment really preclude such practices. And in other words, it's not just our children that need to be sharpened in the law of God in family worship at home but it's the people of God when they're in church on Sunday who need to have their consciences sharpened in the ways of the Lord well now that's the claim I'm making now I must seek to to demonstrate the truth of what I've said in Acts chapter 7 we find the first Christian martyr Stephen give an account of his Christian faith and we're told that he stands up full of the Holy Ghost preaches his sermon and still full of the Holy Ghost is stoned to death by the enraged people who have been angered by what he has said in his sermon now if you take a look at the sermon of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 as I say a sermon delivered full of the Holy Ghost you see that what he's trying to do is to tell the people in New Testament times that the Old Testament people of God was the church. If you'll just take a look at uh, verse 38, Acts 7.38, it's talking about Moses, or perhaps we can start verse 37. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me him ye shall hear of course this is 
something that Moses said predicting the coming of Jesus who was the prophet like unto Moses which prophet Jesus Moses told the people back in his day they must heed and obey when Jesus came now here's Stephen telling the Jewish leaders you need to obey Moses you need to listen to the prophet like Moses who has now come Jesus and to obey him but then he says in verse 38 this is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us to whom our fathers would not obey but thrust him from them and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt now let's take uh, a look at those three verses the statement is made at the beginning of verse 30, 38 this person Moses is the very person this is he that was in the church in the wilderness or in the desert with the angel who spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai now the angel who spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai and who gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai is the angel of the Lord that is the second person of the Trinity the word of God the one who later became flesh and lived amongst us who was himself the prophet like unto Moses and you notice then that it was the second person of the Trinity the word of God the angel of God who gave his law to Moses to give to the people so you see that Christ does not come to destroy the law he comes to bring the law to man and in the New Testament to bring himself down to mankind as the living law and then on the day of Pentecost Christ sends his spirit into his church to indwell his church and to write the law of God on the hearts of his people on the day of Pentecost the day of Pentecost is the day Acts 2 on which the New Testament church visible was born the day of Pentecost took place exactly seven weeks after the exodus of God's people from uh, Egypt. The New Testament day of Pentecost took place exactly seven weeks after Calvary. It was seven weeks after the exodus of God's people uh, keeping the Passover from Egypt that they arrived at Mount Sinai where the law was given you can in fact then say that the first day of Pentecost ever celebrated in Old Testament times was that day seven weeks after the Exodus when God came down with power in thunder and lightning on Mount Sinai and in the power of his spirit carved the law of God into the tablets of stone and of course what happened in the New Testament day of Pentecost was the fulfillment of that prediction God again comes down from heaven in power suddenly uh, like as with tongues of, of, of fire flashes of lightning and with a mighty thunderous voice like a rushing mighty wind carving the law of God the Ten Commandments into the hearts of God's people I want you to see then that the day of Pentecost in the New Testament and in the Old is not something that's opposed to the law of God <laughs> it uh, is the spirit of God carving the law into the consciences 
and the hearts of God's people. But now, getting back to Acts chapter 7 and verse 38, it is this Moses who was in the church in the wilderness, in the church in the desert. Notice that word church. What was the Old Testament people of God? The dispensationalists say it was the nation of Israel and not the Christian church. It was a national people that has absolutely nothing to do with the New Testament church. What saith the scriptures? The scriptures say that the Old Testament nation of Israel was the church. The church in the wilderness. In other words, you see, Moses was in the church, in Christ's church in the desert, with the angel or the head of the church, Jesus Christ, who spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai with our fathers. And this Moses received from the angel, from Christ himself, the lively oracles or the living words of God, the ten words in fact, the ten commandments, to give to us. Because it was the ten commandments that Moses gave to the people after receiving the ten commandments and the other political commandments that followed it from the angel of the Lord. By the way, if you study the political commandments in, uh, in uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy, you'll find that they're nothing else except the application of the Ten Commandments. I don't know whether you've noticed that, but it's good to see it. Um, I'll say one thing about that in a minute. <coughs> so that we see that the law of God, the Ten Commandments, was given to the Church of Christ, uh, when that church was in the desert. That's the point that I want to leave with you, and was given by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, perhaps if we'll open the book of Deuteronomy and take a look at exactly what it was that the angel of the Lord Jesus Christ gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, um, we'll see all of this clearly. If you'll just turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, we could do this with Exodus 2, but we'll do it instead with Deuteronomy. I will say this, though. If you look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, you'll see right after that, in the latter portion of Exodus 20, uh, God proceeds to apply the Ten Commandments, which have been quoted at the beginning of Exodus 20, to social and political situations. Uh, among the ancient people and in Exodus 21, 22 and 23 there's a whole host of political applications made of the Ten Commandments previously revealed for example six years shall a slave that became a slave because he was a debtor and became bankrupt and could not repay the loan that he had negotiated six years or up to six years shall a slave work for free for his creditor but on the seventh year he is to go free or for example the provision that if a man has a wife and if for whatever reason he marries another wife uh, which is not encouraging polygamy but making provision for the first wife if uh, the man is polygamous well then when he takes the second wife he may not diminish the man may not diminish the shelter, the food, and the sexual intercourse which he owes the first wife. 
that is, of course, is a um, Jacob type of situation, uh, which Jacob would have needed to have been aware of in principle in dealing with the two wives that he ended up with, um, Leah and the one he really loved, uh, Rachel. You cannot say, oh, well, now that I've married Rachel, the second wife, the one that I thought I was marrying in the first place, and the one I've loved all along, I'm not going to support the first wife anymore, not going to give her any more food or clothes or whatever. No, no. One needs to continue uh, to provide in marriage that which the duties of marriage require. So then, if you, after reading Exodus chapter 20, go on and read chapter 21, 22, 23, you'll see in chapter 21, 22, 23 suggestions as to how each of those Ten Commandments was to be applied in the ancient culture of Israel so as to bring honor and glory to God in that situation. The same is true of Deuteronomy, to which we now will turn. Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, beginning at uh, verse 6, again enunciates to us the Ten Commandments some 40 years after they were first revealed on Mount Sinai. But as soon as that's been done, as we saw in the last lecture, um, all heads of houses, of homes, are told to inculcate those principles and statutes in the lives of their children when they get up in the morning, when they sit down, when they travel at work, and even politically at the city gates, for example. But then perhaps you haven't noticed that after the Ten Commandments are stated in Deuteronomy 5, Deuteronomy 6 uh, really gives you a pretty detailed discussion in the next five chapters, Deuteronomy 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, of how the first commandment was to be applied in ancient Israel. And then if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 12, you see that starting in chapter 12, from chapter 12 verse 1, through chapter 13 verse 18, you're given a detailed account of how the second commandment of the Decalogue was to be applied. And then, if you start in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 1 to 29, that is the whole chapter, give you a detailed account of how the third commandment was to be applied in the social and the political and the, and the ecclesiastical life of ancient Israel. Starting in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 1, and running through Deuteronomy 16, verse 17, you're given a detailed account of how the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, was to be applied socially and politically in ancient Israel. And then starting in Deuteronomy 16, verse 18, through 18, verse 22, you're given an account of how the fifth commandment was applied in society and in politics. And then, starting uh, at the end of chapter 18, in Deuteronomy 19, verse 1, through and including chapter 22, verse 12, you're told of how the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, was to be applied in ancient Israelitic society and political life. And then, starting in Deuteronomy 
22, verse 13, and running on through Deuteronomy 23, verse 14, we're given an account of how the seventh commandment against adultery was to be applied in society and in politics, uh, involving, amongst other things, the death penalty for rape, uh, to be enforced by the civil magistrate. And then you will notice in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 15, through Deuteronomy 24, verse 22, we're given an account of how the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal, was to be applied politically, involving, amongst other things, the magistrate to require restitution to be made by the thief, and generally fourfold, for anything that he stole. Believe me, if our modern magistrates and judges were to sentence thieves to pay back to the person from whom they stole four times what they stole, that the incidence of theft would dramatically decline in our modern world. And you see, we've got ourselves into the wretched situation that we are in today because we have departed from the law of God, at any, certainly in politics and in society, if not in the church of Christ or in our family life. And then, starting Deuteronomy 25, the whole chapter, uh, you are given um, the way in which the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witnesses to be applied, and it's interesting, it tells you how to run a grocery store, not to uh, shortchange your customers by selling them only 15 ounces of merchandise if they think they're buying 16 ounces or one pound and paying for 16 ounces. All of that is prohibited. And then the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, uh, illustrations of how that was applied in ancient Israel are revealed to us in Deuteronomy chapter 26 verses 1 through uh, 19, that chapter. And after that, and all of this has been given by God through Moses to the church leaders, that's the point that I want you to see, to the elders of ancient Israel, all the people of God were to enter into a solemn covenant and swear by the grace of God to keep his holy law. And this brings me, after a somewhat long introduction, to this present lecture on the law of God and the church, uh, to the heart of our subject, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 1. And Moses, with the elders of Israel, church elders commanded the people saying keep all the commandments which I command you this day and it shall be on the day when ye shall pass over Jordan unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee that thou shalt set thee up great stones and plaster the stones with plaster and thou shalt write upon them all the words of this law when thou art passed over, that thou mayest go in unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, a land that floweth with milk and honey, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee. Therefore, it shall be when ye be gone over Jordan, that ye shall set up these stones, which I command you this day, on Mount Ebal, and thou shalt plaster them with plaster. And that there shalt thou build an altar unto the Lord thy God, 
an altar of stones. Thou shalt not lift up any iron tool upon them. Thou shalt build the altar of the Lord thy God out of whole stones. And thou shalt offer burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord thy God. And thou shalt offer peace offerings and shalt eat there and rejoice before the Lord thy God. And thou shalt write upon the stones all the words of this law very plainly. And Moses and the priests, the Levites, spake unto all Israel, saying, Take heed, and hearken, O Israel, this day thou art become the people of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt therefore obey the voice of the Lord thy God, and do his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. And Moses charged the people the same day, saying, These shall stand upon Mount Gerizim to bless the people when ye are come over Jordan. Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar, that's the first Issacharian report, and Joseph and Benjamin. And these shall stand upon Mount Ebal to curse Reuben, Gad, and Asher, and Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. There you are. Issacharian is to be a blessing and not a curse to New Zealand. Of course, that will depend on what New Zealand does with what the Issacharian report is saying. And the Levite shall speak, and say with all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed be the man that maketh any graven or molten image an abomination unto the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and putteth it in a secret place. And all the people shall answer, all the people shall answer, and say, Amen. Cursed be he that setteth light by his father or his mother. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that removeth his neighbor's landmark. Thou shalt not steal. But notice how it's couched in a very down-to-earth socio-economic way. Cursed be he that removeth his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. So now we've had verse 15, the first and second commandments. Verse 16, the fifth commandment. Verse 17, the eighth commandment. Verse 18. Cursed be he that maketh the blind to wander out of the way. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy blind neighbor. The ninth commandment. And all the people shall say, Amen. Verse 19. Cursed be he that perverteth the judgment of the stranger, the fatherless and the widow. Thou shalt not steal. Honor thy father and thy mother and the widow. Fifth and eighth commandments. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that lieth with his father's wife, because he uncovereth his father's skirt. That's the eighth, seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And all of the people shall say, Amen. Verse 24. Cursed be he that smiteth his neighbor secretly. The sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. And all the people shall say, Amen. And so on. And you'll notice in the next chapter, chapter 28, there follow a system of blessings. It shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, 
so that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth, all these blessings shall come upon thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, blessed shalt thou be in the field, blessed shall be the fruit of thy body, and the fruit of thy ground, and the fruit of thy cattle, the increase of thy, thy kine, and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. Now, go back there to Deuteronomy 6. Sharpen the principles of the law into your children's heart when you get up, when you go to bed, when thou comest into thy house, when thou goest out. See, the same thing is broadening out now from the family into the social and the economic and the political spheres. But it, notice it's being inculcated at the church level. This is God through Moses to the elders and through the elders, the church elders, to the people. And really, until the church of Christ starts thundering down the law of God again, there's not going to be too much effective Christian reconstruction of society outside of the church. And so it goes on. The Lord will bless you by defeating your enemies, etc. and etc. Now, <clears throat> Let's just uh, pause for a moment while keeping the Bible open at Deuteronomy 28. I've said that when we come to Christ, personally, we are under the law of God. It's as if the two tablets of the Ten Commandments on which the, the Decalogue is written are held above us, and as we are reminded of what's written on the tablets of stone, the Spirit of God that carved them on the first tablets of stone on Mount Sinai carves them more and more onto the fleshly tablets of our hearts and brings us as Christians more and more personally into subjection to that commandment. But then second, once we've learned this, as heads of families, we require this at the family level. And we expound the scriptures to our family each day. And as I said in answer to Mrs. Morrison's question, in going through the whole Bible, in the application of it to our lives today, we show our children what the historical portion of the Bible we've just been considering together in family worship, how it applies uh, in nailing down one or more of the Ten Commandments, the law of God, into the lives and hearts of our children today so that they can make the best ethical response to the problems which they face each day now that they've been equipped by reading the historical portions of the Bible and to learn from that historical portion of the Bible what was or was not the right ethical response that was then made, was not then made, or should have been made, and perhaps was not then made. But then I'm going on to say in this lecture uh, that that having been achieved, the Church of the Lord Jesus each Sunday must again hold forth the Ten Commandments in this sense, and the Church goes even further in having recited the Ten Commandments to the people, then explaining to the people a little bit at a time of how they must now go out of the church and apply these commandments in their social lives, in their economic lives, and in their political lives. In some churches, uh, particularly some old-fashioned Calvinistic Anglican churches, uh, you may have noticed that behind the pulpit in the front of the church 
there are two tablets of stone and on the tablets of stone are written the Ten Commandments have you ever been into a church where you've noticed that? I have and it's very striking and in many more churches than that including those churches that have these tablets of stone they practice what Calvin practiced in Geneva and in Strasbourg and which was also practiced in the ancient church for many centuries before the rise of Romanism about the 6th century AD and which Calvin attempted to restore in the reformed churches at the time of the Reformation and which dearly need to be restored today in all churches including many so-called reformed churches and that was this that when Calvin read the Ten Commandments each Sunday from the pulpit he would read one commandment say the first and pause having read it the people in the pew would say Lord have mercy on us and bend our hearts to keep thy law then Calvin would read the second commandment he would pause the people would respond God have mercy upon us and bend our hearts to keep thy law and so on through all ten commandments now of course this could become repetitious sometimes it was varied and Calvin would read the first um, four commandments the first table of the law dealing with our direct duty to almighty God and then pause and the people would at that point for the first time say God have mercy on us and bend our hearts to keep thy law and then Calvin would read the last six commandments which explain to us how we are to serve God not directly but indirectly by doing what God wants us to do to our neighbor not stealing our neighbor's goods wives besmirching his good name and at the end of that second table Calvin would pause and the people would respond Lord have mercy on us and bend our hearts to keep thy law now did you notice this is exactly what the ancient people of Israel were doing in Deuteronomy 27 because after the law of God the Ten Commandments was revealed to Moses personally and he told each head of each family personally to keep the Ten Commandments and then to, to inculcate this into his entire family he now starting in Deuteronomy 27 verse 1 with the elders of the church and through the elders of the church uh, encourages them to do this in a church setting and further in a political setting and he says now when you come into the chosen the promised land I won't be with you then but having crossed the river Jordan you will come to a place where there are two huge rocks or mountain faces between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim and it was the foot of that mountain you may remember that Jacob's well was later built and where Jesus spoke to the woman who had had five men and the one she was living with at the moment wasn't her husband either and uh, Moses or God through Moses says when you come to those two mountains Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim um, Mount Ebal will be the mountain of curse cursed be he who breaks these commandments Mount Gerizim will be the mountain of blessing blessing will be he who keeps these commandments but on rocks near these mountains you are to take plaster some kind of ancient cement and put this plaster over the rock and just when it is getting dry you are to write the law of God 
into the plaster. Uh, you probably know in Hollywood they've got this place where all these film stars have written their names <laughs> into, <laughs> into the cement before it dried. Uh, and I'm sure you've seen that done probably here in New Zealand too. Before the wet cement dries, someone comes along and writes in there, uh, Nigel loves Nelly or whatever it is and puts a heart around it with an arrow through it or whatever. Well, now, this is what they were to do with the Ten Commandments, so that when that plaster dried, Ten Commandments was there, and anyone passing through the strategic point would see the law of God and be reminded of its ecclesiastical, its social, and its political implications. And probably when it had dried, with the inscriptions in it, they then whitewashed it to make it stand out even more. And for all I know, they may then have blackened the inside parts of it to make it stand out yet more. The idea is, if you keep these commandments as a political commonwealth, as an ecclesiastical commonwealth, God will bless you. If you don't, God will curse you and make life miserable for you. And then you will notice that um, when they got going with the exposition of the Ten Commandments, as in Deuteronomy 27 and verse uh, 15, when each commandment was recited, but notice in a fresh form, not necessarily the exact words of each one of the Ten Commandments, but the way in which it was applied politically and which it was decreed by Almighty God to be applied politically right after God revealed the Ten Commandments as such. When each one of these commandments was recited, say verse 15, Cursed be the man that maketh any graven or molten image, all the people were to answer and say, Amen. Or verse 16, Cursed be he that setteth light, or that is, who insults his father or his mother. All the people were to say, Amen. Cursed be he that removeth his neighbor's landmark, thou shalt not steal. All the people shall say, Amen. Now you see why Calvin, in Geneva, set things up in a similar way. I am the Lord thy God, and all the thou shalt have no other God before me. And all the people said, Amen, God have mercy on us, and bend our hearts to keep thy law. So then, you see how important it is for the church and the church's elders to bring the law of God and its concrete application where the rubber meets the road to the attention of God's people in their daily lives. Now, going on, one bit a little further I'd like for us to turn to the next chapter which we started to read chapter 28 which starts by giving the blessings throughout the whole of society if we keep God's law and then in the middle of Deuteronomy 28 it gives a list of curses that will follow if people depart from God's law and I'll just tell you what the curses are and you'll recognize them in western society today inflation depression Socialism, um, lack of eternal security, and increase of so-called social security. Um, wars, rumors of wars, droughts, crop failures, bad climates, uh, diminution of prosperity. Finally, expulsion from the land where we live, enslavement by stronger nations, Russian invasion perhaps 
it struck me as I looked at those guns here in Auckland yesterday that were established in, what was it, 1885, to ward off a possible czarist Russian attack that never came. At least New Zealand was preparing against Russian attack then. But today, when the possibilities of Russian attack are much more awesome, uh, and when the forces that the Russians, now that they're communists, will have at their disposal be far more awesome than anything that uh, the Tsarist Russians had at their disposal today, I'm not quite sure that New Zealand is preparing itself for defense uh, today in anything like the way it did a hundred years ago. And so, you see, this is something to ponder. This is something to ponder. Those that depart from God's law reach situations where... In falling away from God, it's as if God himself sends a blindness into the hearts of ungodly nations and ungodly civilizations and cultures. And sadly, most portions of the Western nations are in this condition today, in varying degrees. And finally, the invasion takes place, the people are dragged off into slavery, into the salt mines of Siberia, or whatever. And then in their extremity they say, We have sinned against God and against you. We and our fathers, we are not worthy to be your children. And then God, in great compassion, moves with his spirit. And people find God again in the Siberian salt mines, as many found God in Auschwitz and Dachau in World War II. That's, that's the pattern. That's the way in which God works in history. Well, let's hope that it doesn't come to that and that we'll wake up and respond to God's holy law before God finds it necessary to resort to such extreme measures. Um, but here are some of the things that Deuteronomy 28 says God will send in punishment, especially to his church people, but also to nations that have been Christian once if they continue to turn away from God's law. Curses permeate the totality of life. Take a look at Deuteronomy 28 and verse 17. Cursed shall be thy basket and thy store. That means frustration in one's daily work. Economic collapse. Verse 18. Cursed shall be the fruit of thy body. That means barrenness, abortions, breakdown of family life, increased divorces. Do we not have it with us? What about verse 21? The Lord shall make the pestilence cleave unto thee. Epidemics, such as we have epidemics of venereal diseases, just to mention one uh, system of diseases in our society today. Uh, or what about verse 23? Thy heaven that is over thy head shall become like brass, and the earth that is under thee shall become like iron. Weather disasters. Or verse 25, the Lord shall cause thee to be smitten before thine enemies, defeat in war and political slavery. Uh, verse 26, thy carcass shall become meat unto all the fowls of the air and unto the beasts of the earth, and no man shall fray them away. That means abandonment to animals such as microbes and bugs, total destruction in other words. Um, and what about verse 28? The Lord shall smite thee with madness and blindness, insanity and derangement, like the insanity prevailing in the political echelons of the West today, saying, oh, well, yes, the Russians overran Afghanistan, but they'll never overrun Holland, or they'll never overrun New Zealand. 
and yet they have overrun Afghanistan. Madness, craziness. Twice that I've been down here, there's a grocer selling a commodity. I don't want to identify him. And his title is the Mad So-and-So. This is the name of the shop, the Mad So-and-So. And it's got a picture on the outside of a man that looks mad, raising up a knife, brandishing it at the public like he's about to chop them down. Now, what kind of a mentality is it that would want to open a shop called the Mad So-and-So? What kind of madness is there in the public that they would feel attracted to someone brandishing a knife and looking at them like he's about to attack them? But you see, when we turn away from the law of God, which alone makes us reasonable, rational beings, God gives us over to a reprobate mind to degenerate into madness. Or like lovers that fall in love, they're not married. Love me tonight and let the devil take tomorrow. That's madness, of course it is. But that's the mentality of people who have removed themselves from the law of God. Madness. And where in the world is there more madness today than in that pinnacle and showcase of socialism? The country of Sweden, with just about the highest standard of living in the world and by far the greatest incidence of madness. See, they have turned away from the law. There is no rationality in those who design such a society. It is a lunatic asylum run by the inmates. Madness. And loss of direction. People are confused. They don't know how to make the right decision. Verse 29. Thou shalt grope at noonday. As the blind gropeth in darkness, thou shalt not prosper in thy ways. Thou shalt be only oppressed and spoiled evermore, and no man shall save thee. The socialist state cannot save. The United Nations cannot save. There is only one who can save, and that's Jesus, for his name is Savior. But they don't want Jesus. They make their own tin pot saviors themselves, their political parties or whatever that cannot save. For they have eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear. And so is everyone that puts their trust in them, blind and deaf and impotent and, let me add, unhappy. Unhappy. And that's Western man in Huberdink's opera Hansel and Gretel you remember that they get lost in the forest as western man is lost in the forest of his humanism today and Gretel keeps saying to little Hans are you sure you know the way? oh yes I know the way I know the way and he blunders on as the western nations in their apostasy from almighty God blunder on in the world today and then finally finally little Hansy levels with uh, Gretel as one day our political leaders will level with us and he says, Gretlein, ich weiß den Weg nicht mehr. Gretel, I do not know the way anymore. And we're reaching this situation. We've got American congressmen uh, of the most powerful nation on the face of God's earth who have tried every hair-brained, hair-brained lunatic scheme both to reconstruct America and the world and they failed. They've called in those who are committed to the law of God for political instruction and they've said to him, we've tried every idiotic scheme. Tell us what the Bible says because nothing else works. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? Oh, to God, that all of the halls uh, of, of art and science and politics and economics would 
confess the bankruptcy of their own schemes today and say we have sinned against God explain to us the law of God the way in which Ezra got upon a pulpit after the Babylonian captivity when all was ruined and when he inculcated the principles of God's commandment for the Christian reconstruction of the commonwealth of Israel and you that's what we need today and my friends if the church of Christ is not going to see the crucialness of this issue and the urgency of the hour what hope is there in our lifetime for meaningful reconstruction of society outside of the church well we could go on and on and we must now at this point bring it to conclusion notice in chapter 29 no one or two more things from chapter 28 it ends in cannibalism I'm told that the Maoris were cannibals when the white people first came here the word of God predicts that people such as the white people who had the word of God and who turn away from it will end up being cannibals you say impossible the word of God says it will happen take a look at the very end of Deuteronomy 28 now let me tell you some of the further things that will happen we must not we must not um, go too fast through this pattern I want you to see with the breakdown of law and order in society today how the word of God in Deuteronomy 28 is being fulfilled in exhaustive detail Deuteronomy 28 verse 30 thou shalt betroth a wife but another man shall lie with her immorality, rape, theft and robbery verse 31 the loss of meaning in daily work verse 32 the slavery of children the deprivation of our descendants of inheritances because of socialistic death taxes powerlessness of people meaninglessness in work exploitation oppression and insanity verse 35 loss of health the Lord shall smite thee in the knees and the legs with a sore botch that cannot be healed verse 36 abandonment by God the Lord shall bring thee and thy king which thou shalt set over thee unto a nation which neither thou nor thy fathers have known and there shalt thou serve other gods of wood and stone the repaganization of the west today there are hippies from Sweden and the United States and from Holland whose grandfathers professed and in many cases did serve Jehovah who are crawling in the sewers of Benares and the Ganges River in India living like pagans literally wallowing in the literal mud repaganization of the West can't we see it happening with the hippies oh what a terrible situation verse 38 poor harvests agricultural pests increasing verse 40 fruitless travail including abortion verse 41 slavery verse 42 and 43 foreign domination if not yet by invasion then perhaps already by economic oppression from other nations verse 44 debt he the oppressor shall lend to thee but thou shalt not lend to him are you in debt are you in debt who do you owe money to do you owe money to anybody praise God if you don't owe money at all but if you do owe money do you owe money to a Christian or to some Shylock ambitious person ripping you off at 20% who knows not your God you see you see debt humiliation dejection verse 45 disobedience 
Verse 48, famine, drought, nakedness, insecurity, want and slavery. Verse 49, political subjugation. Verse 50, disrespect for the aged. Verse 51, depredation. Verse 52, siege and warfare. Verse 53, cannibalism. And thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body, the flesh of thy sons and of thy daughters, which the Lord thy God hath given thee. May I suggest that abortion is a form of cannibalism, where a woman, in a certain sense, eats up her own baby and destroys it because it interferes with what she calls her freedom. This is the beginning of the cannibalism taking root in Western society. Now that we've done this, particularly if there is a, a shortage of protein in the world, which many people are, are predicting, why throw the fetus away after it's been destroyed? It's protein, why not eat it? Mince it up into mincemeat and put it into pies. I hope that you're offended, but I don't think I'm altogether in the realm of science fiction. So, verse 52, collapse of the dignity of man so that the man that is tender among you and very delicate, his eyes shall be turned to evil toward his brother, toward the wife of his bosom, toward the remnants of his children, which he shall leave, greed and selfishness. And verse 52, the breakdown of marriage and of family ties. Verse 52, the tender and delicate woman among you, which would not adventure to set the sole of her foot upon the ground, for delicateness and tenderness, her eye shall become evil toward the husband of her bosom and toward her son and toward her daughter. We're seeing this in abortion today. A woman carrying a baby, having it destroyed and murdered. Cannibalism. Verse 58, 57. And toward her young one that cometh out from between her feet, toward her children which she shall bear. For she shall eat them for want of all things secretly in the siege and straightness wherewith thine enemy shall distress thee in thy gates. If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name Jehovah thy God then chronic ailments then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful. Neuroses and psychoses and breakdowns and meaninglessness in work and boredom. The Lord will make thy plagues wonderful. And the plagues of thy seed, even great plagues and of long continuance and sore sicknesses and of long continuance. Moreover, Jehovah will bring upon thee all the diseases of Egypt which thou wast afraid of, and they shall cleave unto thee also every sickness and every plague, which is not written in the book of this law, new diseases that we don't yet understand. Then will the Lord bring upon thee until thou be destroyed, and ye shall be left few in number, whereas ye were as the stars of heaven for multitude, and Christianity shrinks, and Holland that once was a Christian Calvinist nation has become a new heathendom decline in the birth rate amongst Christian people, abortions, 
verse 63, uprooting, 64, scattering, idolatry, 65, restlessness, fear, blindness, and sorrow, 66, danger, doubt, fear, uncertainty, 67, dread and anxiety. Are these not the marks of modern man in his urban alienation from God and from his fellow man? 68, slavery, and no form of slavery more vicious than slavery to the totalitarian, socialistic, and or communistic state. Concluding exhortation, chapter 29. These are the words of the covenant, which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab, beside the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. And Moses called unto all Israel. He said as a church leader to all of the church, and said unto them, Ye have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt unto Pharaoh and unto his servants and unto all of his land. Verse 9. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that ye may prosper in all that ye do. Ye stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God, your captains of your tribes, your elders and your officers, with all the men of Israel, your little ones, your babies, your wives, and thy stranger that is in thy camp, from the hewer of thy wood unto the drawer of thy water, so that thou shouldest enter into or renew the covenant with the Lord thy God, and into his oath which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day, that he may establish thee today for a people unto himself, and that he may be unto thee a God as he hath said unto thee and as he hath sworn unto thy fathers to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath but with him that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God and also with him that is not here with us this day for ye know and that of course is the future generations 30 verse 19 I call heaven and earth to record to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death blessing and cursing therefore choose life that both thou and thy seed may live and all the people who heard this recited and thundered down were to say Amen God is our witness by his grace we shall keep his law so then in the church of Jesus Christ we must have a resurrection of the preaching and the constant inculcation into the church people from the pulpit of the law of our God if we would see prosperity in the land which the Lord our God hath given us and if we would not see the curse of the covenant come upon us and our children and our grandchildren in all of its dire consequences as we have just seen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.